Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, it's the middle of the year, and uh, occasionally on ASPN and our, on our show, we do check in to talk to the audience, all of our great listeners around the world on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And, uh, you know, I just got back from Maine. We got a really cool uh, show we're going to put together. We're going to talk a little bit about Maine. I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah, and uh, I think we're going to talk about ocean and coastal media, some of the big stories blowing up on the internet that are related to the I ocean and coastal world. I'm excited to check in on yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, I'm no interested. Um, there's a couple of things I'm interested in your take uh, on what we're seeing, uh, drawing a lot of attention on Twitter and around the internet on coastal issues. Likewise, likewise. And, uh, you know, it'd be great if we can, I, I can't wait to tell people, you know, we've really done some, uh, some big new additions to the American Shoreline Podcast Network that I'm just thrilled about the hosts that have come on and uh, I want to I want to acknowledge them and talk about them a little bit absolutely me too uh, it's gonna be a great show Peter we are doing our big kind of download just one-on-one yeah mid-year just a little one-on-one hoops just me and you <laughs> just throwing <laughs> it back and good. forth yeah. shooting some buckets that's right uh, and it's gonna be a great one ladies and gentlemen come along with us uh, we have a, a really packed uh, show for you today but first a quick word from our sponsors the American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Tyler, I just got back from Maine. I slipped out the back door while you held down the fort at Coastal News Today and ASPM, which is a hell of a lot of work. Well, Thank you very much for well, covering for 10 days. You needed the vacation. I really did. And, and uh, you know, it's hot down here in Texas. We're in the uh, middle of summer right now. We're breaking 100 every day, probably for the next week. And, uh, you know, my wife and I decided to slip the hell out the back door and get up to Maine where it was a little nicer. Yeah, well, you know, Maine is a favorite a favorite place here on ASPN. Yeah. We hear a lot about Maine. We talk a lot about Maine. Yeah. And you actually got, I believe, in the, all of our time doing Coastal News Today and ASPN, this is the first time that one of us has actually been to Maine. That is true. That is true. I went to Maine many years ago, probably 10 years ago, with my law school buddy, uh, Michael Nessie. Shout out to Michael Nessie from Hull, Massachusetts. And we climbed Mount Katahdin. Now, this time, I went up with my wife. I wasn't married when Michael and I did that trip. Uh, but we wanted to go up and get out of the heat and, 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 and see a part of the coast of America that we hadn't seen. So it was, it was fabulous. Well, can you tell me? So you, uh, you fly into Boston, we I understand. Yeah, we flew into Boston because, uh, you know, my law school roommate's in Boston. So we were going to drop in and spend a couple of Coastal days. Coastal airport him. there. Logan. Yeah, you know, he lives in Hull, right on the about on Boston Harbor. He's got a boat. Uh, Old vacation. This is interesting. Home Massachusetts uh, was a summer cottage home for wealthy people in Boston who want to get out of the city. 
and they built these summer cottages, which are, you know, two or three stories and big old houses rambling things around the late 1800s, 1900s. And he bought one of these things. No AC, right? Not really conducive to full-time living. But he, so Hull is an amazing place. And we hung out in Hull on the way back, coming on the way back. But uh, got out on his boat. And uh, very nice. Went out to the uh, the the main uh, the uh, Boston Harbor Light, right? The the. So are we starting the tour at the end of the trip? Yeah, we're starting at the end of the trip. It was a lot, you know, the lighthouse. He took us out to see the lighthouse. He says it's the only manned lighthouse on the American shoreline. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So that you you came you went to the lighthouse on the last day. Yeah, of we your did. trip. Yeah. Day before last year. But that is we, almost a poetic ending. It was good, you know. Way to wrap it up. It was a very good ending to the trip. Michael and his wife, uh, Maylee, tremendous people. I've known them forever, and uh, just could not be better. But Maine, uh, you know, we were on the mid-coast is what it's called. Uh, we weren't down east, which is further down, uh, lower in the state. We were on the mid-coast around uh, uh, Camden is the town we were near. Uh, we actually spent a couple days in Camden delightful beautiful coastal town with a really great harbor uh and up inland on lake mcguntatuck as i believe how you pronounce it you know a lot of indian names up there and uh, we spent the first four days at a a really cool cabin on the lake so we had a great great trip love it well i've got to ask so you know maine uh we've we've paid special attention to maine from kind of a gentrification perspective along the shoreline you got to spend some time as a tourist passing through uh what is what is what was your assessment i mean i realize as a tourist but passing through of the working waterfront and yeah. um uh, let's just start with that I'm, well I, we could go further did you did yeah. you talk to a lobsterman you know I've, I've got just so many questions well i you know i did talk to the people in camden camden about the uh about the waterfront and it is gentrifying and uh the main coast a lot of people leaving New York City and the other more densely populated areas buying second houses. So there's a transformation going on on the main shoreline. It's becoming much more expensive uh, and a little more difficult for working uh, waterfront folks. But uh, the thing in the local paper while we were there, and I read it every day, was a, a, there was a proposal by the mayor and the city manager, I believe, and, and a consulting company to put, install a boardwalk around the harbor of Camden. Now, this is not a huge harbor. It's a recreational harbor. There's some two-masted barks and sailing ships, and there are some lobster boats there, but it's it's hanging on as a little bit of a working waterfront, but it's becoming more and more touristy, right? So the proposal is to, uh, is to put a boardwalk all around the interior of the harbor, and it would take access away from some of the existing businesses that work on the harbor. So in the newspaper... It's just flying. I mean, the, the people are pissed off. The, the waterfront owners are upset about this proposal. The mayor and the... I bet. Yeah, no, it's a, it was a classic coastal management problem. And to read it in the local paper and to talk to the uh, folks down on the waterfront about it, uh, I just felt like, you know, this is a microcosm of what's happening on American shoreline. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that in terms of... I mean, would you, if you were the mayor, would you do that? Um, you know, there were a couple of problems. The interesting thing was the uh, local paper did an editorial uh, because the mayor and the city manager uh, called a hearing to explain to everybody what they thought 
needed to happen and why this was important, right? Now, they did that outside of their jobs as city elected officials and managers. So as I said, we're going to set up a discussion and we're just going to tell you what we think as private citizens. And uh, when people interrupted and tried to object to what they what they were laying out. Wow, really? uh, The newspaper said, basically, this is highly questionable process. You can't, as the mayor, get up and speak about an issue central to the city's future and declare yourself a private citizen and shut off opposition. So I thought it was, I was good good to see the local paper take a position. I was for it. Local journalism. Yeah, it was great. Right there, a waterfront issue. We we should have ran that story. Well, I thought about doing, I thought, you know, I was sitting in a bar having a beer, talking to the bartender about this. And I said, you know, this would be a podcast. We would interview the business owners that are being affected and the proponents of the of this boardwalk proposal and it would be an, a perfect microcosm of the kind of economic transfer ta- transformation we talk about all the time you know what what i uh have really been thinking about a lot lately is yeah. the importance of vision hmm. and leadership but vision in particular and you know community visioning when we were talking oh, with yeah. our uh, last on last week's show we were talking about this community workbook that's right and kind of this ground up the, approach which i really believe the climate in. the climate network people that was a good show it was a great show. interesting discussion well and it gets at this idea of how do you merge the vision for the shoreline yeah when there are so many stakeholders yep competing interests competing interests that are uh historically inclined to just put a wall around their little zone right and and not bother with their competitors i mean as long as everyone is eating yeah uh, economically it's not it's not broken yeah and uh but with climate change and with the pressures of also just more people you know in the case of maine there are economic pressures that i think are just as um uh forceful and powerful here i mean covid I know drew a lot of people out of Boston yeah. up there who are now remote working. That's right. Like like we hear from Erica Sears from Big Tourism on the Oregon Coast, people yeah. coming down from Seattle yeah. who are now per- basically permanent Oregon coastal residents that are Zoom working. Yeah, transforming these little total, coastal towns. Well, what is their vision for what these coastal towns will look like? What kind of working waterfront or not? Yeah. Uh, what does the coastline look like? How is it developed? Man, that's difficult to bottle it's a, up. You it's, know? A, it's a constant discussion on the American shoreline, and it's not clear how it's going to go. Obviously, it depends very much. Place to place is different. Um, but it does depend on a willingness to communicate. So I'm interested in your yeah. take when you were in Maine. Huh. I know that you got to talk to some people. Was th- Were people, did they have a vision of their own? Were they, were they wanting to talk about hmm. it? Let's see. I think, you know, I'll tell you the thing that it, it's not exactly what you're asking, but... Uh, we were in sort of doing the walkthrough of Camden and going shop to shop and poking our nose in and, you know, buying a thing for family member and whatnot. As I told Genevieve, I said, the tourist economy requires that we're out and about. We buy a few things. That's what I'm telling you. They're measuring everything. So let's go. What do you want to get for your mother? So we went. But I was talking to the shop owners and I said, what's the, what's the business like? And they said, it has never been this busy at all we can't keep things in stock we're having a hard time getting a hold of inventory there are so many people here it is higher than before the pandemic so a lot of people getting out trying to get out of the city maybe take advantage of this window in the pandemic in the COVID outbreak 
So it was interesting just to see the intensity and the boardwalk proposal is in line with the fact that the economy is becoming more tourist oriented. No question. And they do have a section. You mean they don't want to put cranes in? The mayor's not calling for heavy equipment to be moved in? You know, the shipyard and the the ship repair business that's on part of the harbor, they're like, that's all going to get torn down and that's going to be turned into some great restaurants and some condos and some... And you would be able to walk along the waterfront, which you can do in a section, probably about 25%. And I got to say, it's beautiful. There's really fine restaurants right on the harbor. You're walking between the restaurant and the water. You can look at the boats. You can sit out at a table, have this beautiful view. But these are working spaces. And having none of it available for uh, the watermen uh, and women and the businesses that require access doesn't seem like a good idea to me. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, well, um, I would agree with that. And I would just say that the community needs a diversity to yeah. it. And yeah. and I mean that in all senses. And um, what we see in a lot of uh, coastal communities is when you go, when the pie gets overly tourist-oriented, you lose a yeah. segment of yeah. the workforce. You lose a segment of the community. The character of the town. Well, it, it, and it impacts that. I, yeah. I think it does impact that. Yeah. But, but I mean, we're talking about, uh, I believe that a well-rounded yeah. uh, community has a well-rounded economic kind of profile yeah, in an yeah. ideal land, you know, in a... Yeah. Uh, the, well, it's, the, the shining city on the hill I is wanna, not a monoculture situation. I w- and I want to see that stuff. I mean, we, we took a drive south of Camden down to meet Bill O'Byrne, who's a host on ASPN, uh, worked at NOAA for 30 years, and the, and the state director of the Maine Coastal Program. So we were going to go sea kayaking with Bill and Kathleen. It was a really great trip. But we went through Bath, Maine. Now, you're coming, we were coming from Camden, so we're driving south. Uh, and crossing the Bay Bridge into Bath, Maine, and the Bath Ironworks were there, and in the, which is a major shipbuilding uh, uh, government procurement, Huge. yeah, for the U.S. Navy, and has been for a hundred years or more. Yeah, and uh, some of these naval ships under construction are along the waterfront, right in front of the Bath Ironworks. And I was fascinated. I wanted to stop and go there. That's, I don't want to. That's why stop. we do this podcast. I don't want to stop at the <laughs> restaurant. I want to go over there and see. Now we did not have time, but I was able to uh-huh. see. They're doing these uh, these new littoral ships. These close in water. You know, um, we're gonna have to have the admiral destroyers. On and talk about I mean, this. The, the ships. You can say, like, wow. You know, the, and this is the major employer in the state of Maine. Is Bath Ironworks is I think in the private sector is the largest single employer in the state. So. Yeah, we want that kind of diversity and that kind of uh, uh, excitement on the shoreline, and the and the utility and the and the economics of that are critical. So you know, it can't all be condos and and uh, restaurants. I don't think. Well, and I I also I mean, my main thing is that, uh, pardon the pun, but that a diversified community will take a more diverse you'll get more perspectives on how the coastal space yeah um can can be utilized in the most um effective and healthy ways and when you have a monoculture of interest you get yeah uh you know you get a heavy industrial port or you get um a really like fake beach or you know like a waikiki 
or something like that when you have just yeah. like pure tourism or pure right. and what i prefer to see is what you're describing actually yeah. in camden where you actually have a stack of yeah. things happening in the same space it's actually just educational to be there it even is. if you're a diner it's more interesting if you yeah. want to promote tourism i think it's more interesting to go to a place that has and there are working lobster boats in uh, camden harbor and then there's the these hundred year old schooners that are totally the, the, the guy told me said look we have we have two of these barks or schooners they're about a hundred feet long two masts, wow. and they you know you can you can take a cruise they run it out every day and he said these are the only uh coast guard certified total sailing ships where there's no backup engines at all that are still sailed for uh for uh for fair for for paying customers uh there are sailboats that are not uh don't have motors but um and i was like wow that's kind of interesting he's like no these are these are the these are the last three are right here in camden so wow that could have been a sales pitch <laughs> <No. laughs> I suppose we so. we thought seriously about taking it but we didn't uh, but um no but i lo- i loved camden and and uh I'll tell you, we the other interesting thing from the trip to Maine is we went, we did the Sea Kind track trip with Bill O'Byrne and uh, the director of the uh, State Coastal Program, and we had a chance to meet with the uh, state geologist who was who's a coastal geologist and and walked a beach and talked about the geography of uh, geology of Maine, and uh, that was all cool, but. We, we we did the sea kayak trip and we 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 stopped for lunch on this little uh, island smidgen island and uh there was a boat there and there were some people on shore and they were from the uh coastal uh the main coastal heritage uh foundation i believe it is what it's called a nonprofit that purchased the island and so we got to talk to the the preservation folks uh uh from the heritage and kind of the trust and it used to be an African-American-owned island after the Civil War, uh, probably one of the few African-American communities in Maine. And by about 1915, they'd all been run off, and the island was uh, possessed by the state of Maine. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, and, it, and I haven't, I would, this is another thing we could do a story. We got to do some research would, on yeah, this. Yeah, I'd be very interested to we know more hit, about We got to hit up with that organization. Yeah, I got her card, and, uh, you know, it's an interesting story, and, and they're, they're working with the descendants of the owners of the, uh, the island, the African-American community, because it's only was, a, you know, it's 100 years ago, so there's a lot of kids still right. around. And there's something to know about the equity to access uh, shoreline access is something that's happening not just in may but you know la just returned a big piece of property to an african uh, african-american owned uh, resort facility uh, that the state had dispossessed them of and they after you know 100 years they decided to give it back to the family and that's just uh, it'll be that'll be in coastal new state tomorrow in fact yeah, I mean, this is a. Uh, I think that we're going to see a lot more of this, um, and I'm blanking on the name of this policy, but uh, there is a, um, a a kind of federal land management concept about uh, returning land to hmm. uh, tribal organizations right. and tribes um, as a policy. Yeah. And Canada's done some huge givebacks yeah. to the indigenous culture, and uh, some tribal lands in Oregon have been recently 
return to the tribe, I believe. Yeah. And anyway, it's it's interesting and, of yeah. course, super important. And we will be covering these stories as they emerge. Right. Uh, what a cool encounter there on your ocean yeah. kayaking trip there. Absolutely. Around lucky. Smidgen Island. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was called, I'm going to get the name wrong. Uh, Genevieve handed me the pamphlet, my wife. She said, oh, for your show, here's the pamphlet. And, of course, I left it. But I think it's called Magala. Uh, small island, but um, it was great. And we also had some superb lobster. And uh, I, I had a long conversation, actually, with a New York tugboat captain uh, who lives in Maine. And uh, he goes down to New York Harbor, and he captains a tug and has been doing this for a couple of decades. And then he comes back to Maine and when he's not on board and hangs out and it lives a really nice life. But he's talking a lot about New York Harbor and what's happening in the harbor. And we, we were talking about, about the lobster industry. And I said, you know, that it's, it's, it's pretty good. He said, they're compl- you know, these regulations are really hurting them. I said, well, you know, they're, they're making more money now in the last five years than they have 25 years ago by far. They're, the, the harvest tonnages are doubled from, you know, the 1970s, 1980s, even maybe the 90s. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the regulations... And the global marketplace is yeah. way bigger now. Yeah, and I don't think the regulations are a problem for the, for the lobstermen, really, in my take. They seem to be doing very well financially. And uh, uh, we talked about climate change, and they're very aware. He said, look, the, 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 when I was a kid up here, we, we had snow from basically from October to March. And the, uh, uh, he lives on the lake we were at. He was a neighbor on the lake. And he said this lake would be frozen all winter, and we'd go ice skating on it, and we'd uh, we'd we'd go ice fishing, and we'd be out on the lake. He said the last five years there's not any snow at all. It's not the lake isn't freezing at all, and he said so we can tell it's changing, and we know the the lobster fishery is changing, and so they're very aware of it up there. It was interesting. I mean, you, know, you pick up the vibe, and though I didn't hear anybody tell me climate change wasn't true, and I asked. several people in conversations in in the in the 10 days we were up there interesting yeah well it doesn't surprise me given how uh maine i mean we're talking about uh that lobster fishery is such a changing i mean it has been changing on the american shoreline now for decades yeah i mean it has been migrating north yeah and maine has found itself in the sweet spot yeah of late and Everyone can see clearly that uh, that's not going to last forever. Joe, according to Joe Conkle, Doctor Conkle, we've had on a couple times. He said this is a this is the peak before the crash, and that the the Gulf of Maine lobster fishery is likely to significantly decline as the population migrates further north. Uh, it's happened, you know, since it was down in Virginia and then in Long Island Sound and. As it's migrated, the lobster fishery has migrated northward over the last, you know, hundred years. Absolutely, so I think they know that. I think the fi- I think the lobster fishermen know that things are incredibly good right now, but there's it's not going to stay this way. And the insecurity of that change, which is it not their fault, is is really freaking people out. Well, I can I can absolutely understand why. I yeah. mean, you get you you rely you get built into like this economic model where you're priced into it yeah and um if the underpinnings are shaking that is an anxiety inducing right 
condition to be operating in. And it's like, they're not alone. I mean, we, we, we talk a lot about them because they're an interesting community on the American shoreline. But yep. in truth, what I think we're realizing, particularly with this heat wave in the Pacific Northwest and the floods in Europe and yeah. just the, the acceleration of climate events seems to be solidifying the fact that uh, what we th- what we thought we might be able to count on. I mean, even this summer yeah. we're having here in Austin, man, is bizarre. Yeah, it is. It's a bizarre very, summer. It's been a really strange last six months where we went from deep freeze temperatures, uh, snow on the ground for a week, to a, a ton of rain, and and now up to our you know hundred and five, hundred and seven degree days. I, mean, uh, I, I don't want to step on uh, Jackie Bear and Simone Malaz and their upcoming uh, Delta Dispatches show that comes out on Tuesday, but. I learned that New Orleans has already reached their annual rainfall oh, amount really? wow. so far this year. Wow. And hurricane season hasn't really even no, we haven't, cranked in. We haven't had any storms. That's normally when most of the rain falls is that's in right. this next part of the year. Ooh, that's interesting. So it's been a gnarly year, I think, from a climate perspective for a lot of people. And I think regardless of whether you're a lobsterman or you just live in New Orleans or you live anywhere, frankly, I mean, I think that this is kind of it's a global thing. Yeah. But it feels real shaky. It does. And I, I do think it, people, uh, uh, you know, somewhere deep down understand that, that like you're saying, there were certain assumptions about how the world operates that we've been working off of a certain equilibrium. Um, not totally interrupted, you know, that kind of thing. But but people knew where you could build a house. They knew where the water is going to be, this sort of blue sky flooding and water coming into places it shouldn't be and and all kinds of infrastructure being impinged by sea level rise. Um, and then the movement of living organisms that are commercially important uh, shifting location. I mean, this is not stuff people thought would change um and it is and i think uh i think we know it's important i think most people even people who are denying it are a little bit like you know a little bit of oh shit i just think that's over i mean this might be a generational thing but i really do feel like it's over yeah but let me let me just Uh, ask because we i want to what else would you like the audience to know about your main trip huh well hmm you know, it's a, of course beautiful. It was absolutely fantastic. I would give it a ten. I'm, we're looking forward to going back. We need to go back for a longer period of time. We just scratched the surface. Uh, we didn't get to Acadia National Park. We didn't do so many things. Uh, it's an extraordinary place, and uh, I got to tell you, it's it's really nice to be in a place where it's you know in the 60s at night in the middle of the summer yeah (laughs) so i'm not complaining no it was fantastic it was a fantastic trip but let me ask you so you know we on coastal news today and aspm we're 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 on the edge of what's happening in conversations around the american shoreline and you record every podcast that the american shoreline podcast network puts out which i've got to think we're over 600 by now yeah we are clearly um a lot, Tyler. But um, so, what what's jumping out at you? I mean, you're tracking the news and listening to the conversations, and and uh, we're putting out the news on coastal news today. Uh, there's a couple things like I've been really interested in this uh, Coastal Barrier Resources Act uh, dis- 
discussion that's been kind of popping on social media. Yeah, you know, I wanted to actually ask you about that because yeah. uh, I've noticed that uh, in my network, certainly on LinkedIn, uh, this has been there's been quite a bit of buzz about this. Yeah. And since you are our news guru, I wanted to ask you, I mean, what's going on? First of all, what is going on? Okay. What has happened? So I think the coastal professionals out there, uh, certainly in city uh, government and uh, coastal government, state government, will know the Coastal Barrier Resources Act of 1982, which was an attempt to put it in the vernacular to kind of zone the American shoreline and set aside areas where no federal fund or federal support could be invested. So if you were trying to get, if you were trying to put in a sewer system, you could not get any federal money for a sewer system, water system, you couldn't build a beach, you couldn't get federal money for a port. What they were saying, trying to say is there are coastal barrier areas that are high risk, that are in pristine condition, we don't want them to be developed. So the law said, no federal support allowed to go into a COBRA area or a COBRA unit, and they're all mapped. And this is all managed kind of interestingly by the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. But COBRA has been a bit controversial over the years because developers are going, there's all this beautiful undeveloped land right on the shoreline. How about it? Let's uh, build the roads, put in the infrastructure, and put the houses in. We'll make a bunch of money. The law doesn't allow it. So... What's happened lately is uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, when he was in office, uh, changed a policy that related to COBRA that said, if you're nourishing a beach in an area that is developed and you want to go into a COBRA unit where there's a lot of sand near the shore and suck it all up and move it out of the COBRA unit, the undeveloped area, to widen the beach in a developed area, the the uh, Trump administration said, we're changing the policy on COBRA and we're going to let you go into a COBRA unit and take sand. Now, previously, you could not do you that. You could not do that. Do you know why, what was the reasoning for why you couldn't well, do that? Well, I mean, the whole notion of COBRA is that uh, coastal development can be uh, irresponsible and dangerous and costly and where there are areas that are highly vulnerable and are undeveloped, we shouldn't do anything to put structures in there so they did they were basically set asides and the sand is a dynamic part of the of the shoreline as we know so well, i think they just the, didn't want people to mine it <laughs> you don't want to mine the pristine area it's called the coastal barrier resources, resources. yeah and that sand strikes me as being an important piece of the coastal barrier resource so basically what the trump administration was uh, allowing is the rating of that coastal barrier resource for the purposes of protecting yes. non-COBRA areas. Yes. So if you're a beach nourishment fan, and I know many in our audience are, and local governments who depend on beach nourishment, the new Trump policy was like, oh, wow, maybe we could do our projects less expensively. We have a new source of sand available to us. Uh the Biden administration came in and has now reversed that policy. And they said, no, we're not going to allow uh, authorized in any federal permit uh, the use of uh, sand sources within COBRA units. So uh, if in the coastal crowd that we're running in and that read Coastal News Today and listen to ASPN, uh, let's just say there's people on both sides of that issue. Oh, this is definitely going to be a controversial one with, with <laughs> the ASPN audience. I know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Probably have people on both sides of the fence. No doubt. And uh, 
you know, so there's been some tweets and there's been some, you know, people complaining about the Biden policy. And uh, there's been some po- folks uh, strongly supporting the Biden policy and saying we should not be, number one, uh, damaging these covered unit areas. And number two, we shouldn't do anything to encourage more development in the developed areas. Or So they're, they're, they're looking, you know. What's your read on this as kind of an early Biden administration huh. policy move? Well, I, I you know, the, the, the covert statute was passed in 1982 it's 19 it's that's almost that's 40 years ago so until trump fiddled with it these areas were considered somewhat i wouldn't say sacrosanct but highly protected and uh so going back to the original principles of the law and this and the understanding of the statute and the situation pre-trump uh at least is arguably the standard that you're trying to get to this exception that was built um uh, maybe a good idea, but here's the deal. Why not go to Congress and see if you can get a law passed that says we want to be able to do things differently? I think, uh, I don't know. My personal take is uh, certainly there are advantages to being able to get less expensive sand from Cobra units, but uh, I got to think that the potential for for long-term negative consequences of, uh, of allowing that uh, nearshore sand acquisition um um, i'm not for it well what did you think about the media response to it because i noticed some of these headlines uh the the press release that the u.s fish and wildlife uh service uh put out was very different than the headlines that so many of the yeah the local papers that we cover i mean this this story went kind of viral if you will around local journalism it did um, along the American shoreline, and we ran several of the stories. Yeah, absolutely, and it's definitely newsworthy for a lot of communities. Certainly, yeah. if you were banking, if you were planning on this, well, it just was so new a policy. I doubt any of those sand sources had been written into a permit at this point. It takes a while. Yeah, uh, I don't think that had really started happening yet. But yeah, the 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 local press headline messaging was along the lines of Biden administration shuts down beach restoration for America and it's the terrible thing in the world. It was that kind of skies falling. Yeah. Stuff. It and really was. It was. It was it, and I think that's that's an overstatement and and I would say uh you know Rob Young who we follow and who's been a guest on our show several times over at the uh, program for developed shorelines at Western Carolina University. Uh, you know, he, he, he commented on LinkedIn a couple of times during this little uproar and pointed out that all of the claims that this was going to shut down beach restoration in America were untrue because uh, this hadn't even happened yet and had not happened in the past. And lots of beach nourishment is done in America without using sand sources from Cobra units. So it's not true that it would make it impossible. What do you think it means from a policy perspective that um, Trump did, I mean, that this was kind of a a bit of a controversial area of policy. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I think in general, if, you know, if you look across the board, the Trump administration was definitely trying to drop the regulatory hurdles to actions that they thought were needed to occur. So th- this is, was an important one for coastal people. The other major one they did was they changed the definition of waters of the United States 
and changed the jurisdiction of the Corps 404 wetlands permitting program to eliminate uh, you know streams that were not hydrologically directly connected to you know uh, inter, inter, interstate waterways. In, in other words, isolated wetlands and ephemeral streams and ponds and things were going to be excluded. That was the biggest policy shift they attempted to make that's relative to coastal issues, but of course it applies nationally. And uh, he and that Biden has reversed that the implementation of that rule change. They actually did that through a rule change. And uh, in the agricultural press, if you read, you know, farmer or agricultural news sources, they're very unhappy about this retreat from the Trump policy. But uh, the fans of the of the status quo, you know, before the change. And the, the way Waters of the United States was interpreted uh, to include uh, ponds and ephemeral streams and uh, in the past uh, are all in favor. So the attempts to really loosen up some environmental regulation by Trump uh, has obviously been reversed by Biden. And, uh, you know, you're going to like it if you're on the environmental side of the equation. You're going to hate it if you're not. And uh you know, a little bit like America today. It's pretty polarized. It definitely is. It's an interesting. It is polarized. Yeah. And I mean, I think fundamental to it, Peter, is that on the one hand, uh, you have the Dems, uh, in particular Biden. You know, I'm, I'm generalizing here, yeah. but the Biden uh, ideas on infrastructure and climate. And he, he is wanting the United States to guide the United States into this kind of uh, uh, maneuver where we're using climate change almost as a, as a new frontier of economic opportunity. Yeah. And um, what part of that, what that, what that entails is that we're going to have to change. When we change these rules, it will present new opportunities and new, new frontiers do you uh, think he's right about that when he says that climate change creates new economic opportunity? Oh, I think. Do you, do you buy that? Oh, a hundred percent. Of course, yeah. I have to. I mean, I'm. Yeah. I'm thirty-four years old, so I'm. I'm. My generational read on climate change is that, um, the if like denialism by now is just sheer theater. Yeah. It's not. It's not. No. It's purely theatric. Yeah. And I'm just like, and I'm going to change the channel. Yeah. Um. And. So, but the serious conversations that we have are like, how are we going to use the seafloor and what will remote sensing technology and, um, you know, advanced computer learning and AI and, um, our abilities to monitor the environment in ways we never have. These are all going to allow us to do things better to I run hope. a more sophisticated economy. Oh, I, I man, I hope I'm, that's true. Yeah, I definitely see the glass half full. I, I, I think I'm with Joe true. on this. Yeah, I've been drinking that Joe Kool Aid. Well, there's a bunch of you know. It, it's surprising in the 21st century we think we've conquered the planet, but right now there are whole new territories of the sea that are opening up to economic exploitation that have never been used before by mankind, or should I say, humankind. And that's the deep seabed mining issue and, and the fisheries in the Arctic and the oil and gas development in a territory of the planet that really uh, has not been exploited in the Western way. It has been home to indigenous communities for thousands of years who have used the space for their livelihoods. But we're talking now about the industrialization of the Arctic, and that's never happened. And uh, 
So I'm hoping that that you know your generation and Tyler has a you know just that we don't make the same kind of mistakes we've made in the last 150 years in um, you know coming across the North American continent as the you know the, the I don't think there's that, any you know, question that we're just that our attitudes have changed. We're just not the same um, uh, culture and we don't have the same attitudes toward the environment and the planet that we did in the 1860s and 70s and 80s. And, um, you know, during certainly the 20th century, uh, but also I, and, you know, Brad Warren talks about this, our, our great host of changing waters Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, the reason why we are, why I feel so confident that we we as a society of human beings can survive climate change and adapt and achieve all of this opportunity that I'm talking about is because we possess the technology and the and the understanding the technical know-how currently exists hmm. what doesn't exist is the cultural know-how hmm. like we know how we know how to manipulate yeah. the environment we can move the earth we can yeah. do all this stuff that's what we <clears throat> did the past 200 years yeah we're pretty we figured good at all that, that out. that's true we could you know we know we if if the political will was there the idea of producing massive amounts of electricity with solar and wind uh, are is available right now there's nothing technologically out of bounds on that and it's only going to get better like iPhones in terms of efficiency and things but yeah the cultural preparedness in our political state uh, not in a problem solving mode right now well I I think that we're getting there I mean I yeah, again I just good. I think it's a pro- you know I don't want to be negative process. I'm not trying to be negative I and I'll, I'll tell you something um, these these big events, these big heat events uh, and flood events and fire events um, that are impacting people for real. I mean, it's one thing for us to read about it. Right. But like many, many, many thousands and thousands of people are yeah. being impacted by climate events each year. And that's ultimately, as you say, Peter, reality is the best teacher. And yeah. it sinks um, in. That's what it is. It's like, oh, this is this is just Austin. This yeah. is just really Austin yeah. where we live. Yeah. And if you're living, this is just really Portland, Oregon or really Here's, Maine. I, I mean, it, it's true. It's absolutely starting. Remember we talk, we kind of joke about this a little bit. If after a massive hurricane, like hurricane Michael, uh, on the Florida coast that just devastated, uh, a complete, it just wiped out to the foundations, a community, uh, the you, you, they get on CNN. The, they interview the landowners, and they said, "Hey, listen, that was a terrible storm, and and uh, but we are looking for we're coming back bigger and better and stronger." It's almost part of the uh, the iconography of hurricane coverage in America. Is there's always that person with, you know, the flag or on their rubble saying, "We are going to come back," and and we all appreciate that as Americans. We I think we respect that. But now I'm starting to see in the press and in interviews people who have been in California in the wildfires and, and, and had to evacuate multiple times and have their lives threatened and their property threatened or in multiple floods and hurricanes along the Gulf Coast. And they interview somebody and they say, we just can't, we can't do this anymore. This is really, it's, impo- it's emotionally impossible. You, you know, we can't deal with it. So you're starting to hear people say, we're not going to stay I'm actually starting to see people in the press say the opposite. Uh, I don't know if we're going to stay. This is too much to handle. That's yeah. new. 
No, Don't it you is. Think? I think that's new. I agree. And I mean, uh, yeah, this is good because we're, we're on our list of things to talk about is kind of the media, the media landscape kind of check in. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I do think that the mainstream media is making is covering a different type of um, coastal story and mm-hmm. ocean story. Um, mm-hmm. And there's no question that the major publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post and Los Angeles Times um, have really invested yeah. like millions of dollars. Miami Herald. Miami Herald in really, their reporting. Really yeah. They uh, have designated climate yeah. reporters. They are doing extremely excellent deep dive work, long form work also multimedia work where they're yeah. using videos and animation and they are they are messaging to their audiences a nuanced understanding huh. of what's happening in their in Miami or that's in LA good. or that's in New true. York that's really true and i mean people are aware i mean yeah. people in New York are aware neighborhood by neighborhood i mean they lived through sandy they remembered if they flooded or not and yeah. oh you have a basement with a boiler in it you well you had to buy a new boiler and that you know mm-hmm. was really expensive yeah. they remember that and yeah yeah um so huh. that's i think interesting. i th- i do think that we are entering into a new age of the coverage where um, they're going, I think I said they, mainstream media is now going to be just talking about climate change as a matter huh. of fact. Okay, let me ask you this. That's a very interesting observation. And, and, and if you look at, say, why, if you took a poll of coastal state uh, opinion on climate change and the interior of the country... One of the reasons there could be a difference is because of what you said, and this is true, that coastal newspapers, New York Times, L.A. Times, Charleston Papers, down in Miami, the Miami Herald especially, and on on the coastal cities, they're talking about climate change and sea level rise a lot, and they're doing lots of long-form journalism, and people are seeing it vividly with flooding in Miami or in Key West or, you know, hurricanes, Right. So even if your politics is that you don't think the government should interfere or that you think the cause is beyond a human effect, you're at least educated about what climate change is and aware of it and seeing it. If, if you're in the Midwest of the United States, uh, you'll see a story because it's reported. These stories are shared, but I don't know if you pay attention to it at all, and I doubt it registers very much because it's just you know over there what, you know, I know. I, is I, that no? no i i mean i i do think that i think that the coastal i mean for one the fact that these big papers big city journalism it, there's a lot of people on the american shoreline and there's a lot more journalism on the american shoreline than there is in the interior but uh i definitely think for one you mm, know yeah, Hel- helen Broll would have to talk would probably disagree with you about the upper Midwest and Great Lakes region where there are plenty of coastal issues in air quotes that are not necessarily on the Great Lakes shoreline, but on other water related issues as flooding has been a major issue. It's a good argument. Blue green algae, algal blooms have been major issues up there. Right. Water quality and industrial um, chemical stuff is a major issue Hmm. up there. Um, and of course, you know, we know about the, 
the environmental hot button issues like pipelines and stuff like that is right. com- remains to this day. Right. Which are climate oriented. Absolutely. Discussions. So, but I mean, you know, yeah. So in Iowa, I, the, is the, uh, Des Moines register, uh, covering climate change the way that the San Francisco Chronicle is? No. I don't think so. But they are covering it, and I think they're talking about crop production, and they're talking about growing seasons and harvesting levels and what's happening in in the commodity industry, also affected by climate change. Yeah, that's a good point. So, okay, let me ask you this, because, you know, every year, what the Discovery Channel has been doing Shark Week for how long? 20 years. Is it 20? 20 years? And back in the old days, they you know, and I watched it in the early days, and it was it was very sciencey. You know, there were you know they were they were it was very educational stuff, and 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 it seems like it's evolved a little bit, and it seems like there's a lot of people in the. This is one of the hot button issues on coastal social media is Shark Week. Well, I, look, we have to do and what you know. What do you think? I well, mean, thank you. I'm going to just use. You know, we have a podcast for a reason, and sometimes. I, I got to use the platform to call a spade a spade. And um, with regard to uh, the modern media uh, landscape and specifically the, the pop culture media uh, around science communication and ocean science c- content, uh, the quality, ladies and gentlemen, has... Uh, not over the, not across the board. There's a lot more content available today. There's a lot of great stuff that is produced, and uh, we all know what that is. There's the David Attenborough stuff and many others. But uh, Shark Week has really kind of debauched um, this corner, and it's it's sad to see. Really? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, they've okay. turned it into a like a jackass television week uh, where. It's it's kind of faux science, um, right? And I'm not gonna go into. There's gonna be a story I understand this week on uh, Coastal News Today about a new study um, about that kind of analyzes Shark Week. Actually, uses uh, looks at transcripts and looks at the hosts and looks at their gender and their race and kind of really studies it. And really? it's it's yeah. So I would I would I'm not going to go into that okay. at all. But what I would say is that what's driving the media discussion, we need to really focus on what the drivers are here. And of course, when you're dealing with the Discovery Channel, you're dealing with a like huge conglomerate media empire, yeah. and they're looking at dollar signs yeah, and part of Disney Network, and, right? Uh, I, Discovery, I, I think. I think they might be a part of the Turner group, but. All right. It doesn't matter. No. Um, the point is that they these are driven by uh, okay. analytics and ratings. They're chasing numbers. Okay. And they know that when they do this, they're going to get a certain audience. And um, the, that audi- they're getting feedback from that audience because this audience is really loving it. But there isn't a real duty there to, to actually educate or... Uh, generate an appreciation for these animals or for the planet or like it's it's like how about this it's the mech rib of science tv they trump it out once a year it sucks i used to look forward to the McRib for many years and i go get it right and i think (laughs) what the hell why have i you know wait i'm like oh my god it's back right and it's just trash it's a trash sandwich 
and 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 this has become kind of a fast food um, nature show. It's, it's sensationalized. And it's just bad. I mean, like, it's honestly, bad. the fact that it gets great ratings is, um, or, and I don't even know, I, I can't say that it gets great ratings. I imagine that if they made better content, they'd get much better ratings. Oh, yeah. I think that they're locking out a great deal of their of their huh. potential audience. And there's no reason why it needs to be this way, which is kind of why we okay. do a little bit of what we do. But between Shark Week and, of course, uh, the other big one that, ruffled yeah. a lot of feathers was Seaspiracy, which was a Netflix doc- documentary that um, was just really terrible. And Came out about, what, two months ago, three months ago, where, somewhere around, what, April, maybe? I, I'm going to say it came out five months ago. Okay, so earlier this year. We're really late to be talking okay, about it, but yeah, that's, our, that's my point. Well, we, we ignored it deliberately because it was trash. I, and I want to, yeah, so it's been out in a while. People probably heard it. It was widely covered in the international press, and the discussion went on for some weeks about what this film meant. So what's your take on that whole situation? Well, it's just it's it's a terribly oversimplified uh, discussion about sustainable fisheries and um, the first of all the existing regulatory structures and kind of abuses that exist, but then basically offers a um, offers a, a vision of the future whereby the only way that we can save fish is to go vegan. Yeah. And um, it, it, which again, so it was it, a it was a criticism. I have not seen it, but I, you know, from from what I've read, right, criticism of the commercial fishing industry, and basically, dude, it's bigger that than that. Way. It's okay. bigger than that. It's okay. a criticism of, of of what of not only the commercial fishing industry, but of the government oversight of the nonprofits that that they would say quote unquote claim to be working on behalf of sustainable certification that are profits yeah are part of the they think that they're saying are just part of this cabal this this kind of evil empire that's just sucking fish out of the ocean okay and they're making their own rules and that sustainable fisheries they would say are a myth um that Hmm. that there just is no such thing you're you're just killing the fish well certainly there must be well, I mean, it's, I mean, if you and I went out, if we were the fishery and we went out and caught some bluefin tuna in the Atlantic, it's a sustainable fishery. So I know it's true. Whether if you, know, if you can feed the human population, I don't know about that, but you can absolutely fish sustainably. Well, it, it can be done, and there's a long history of of uh, our and successful history of regulating fisheries that tanked. And then fishery rules were put in place yeah. and those fisheries were expanded and eventually reinstated and are now being managed healthy in a healthy, sustainable way. Correct. And are like producing and there's real fishermen making Gulf money of doing Mexico uh, redfish, as Robert Jones explained to us many times. He was one of our old hosts uh, and a fisheries expert was. Yeah, there are. Yes, I think that's true. So my point is, is that the media landscape is really... Uh, I would say it was a bad year. Honestly, there were hmm. some some really big time uh, opportunities here to talk about climate change, to talk about um, fisheries. I mean, the content is so important. Um, whether it's climate change, you know, coastal adaptation, climate, whatever the case may be, but the delivery devices that we're seeing, the actual content that we're seeing produced, hmm. um, is distracting. 
And um, do you think it's sensationalistic or yeah, what's yeah, totally. what I mean? Yeah. Oh, it's it's totally sensationalistic, and it's just it's just it's just not great. It's just bad content. I mean, hmm. uh, watching if, if you have an eye for this stuff, it's the same footage over and over and over and over again. Huh. Um, they know that like a chomping biting mouth will get eyes to look at it. Right. I, I guess it's just in our mind that that's really yeah. compelling to watch. Yeah. And so you're going to watch that happen during shark week, like hundreds of times. It's true. And I got to say, that's just not that great is from it, from entertainment nah. perspective. I, There's more, so much more, so much more on. So this is really a shout out to content makers to okay. make some good shit. Yeah. So move past, I mean, shark week, there was, uh, I think I'm, uh, the story comes out in Coastal News today, uh, on, when this broadcast comes out, there is a story, and I believe it was Science Magazine. Uh, you said that someone had done a, a review and a criticism of Shark Week. This was the scientific review and criticism of Shark Week. And uh, they're lamenting the fact that this, uh, this show... Um, this media property, which has become, you know, it's, it's, it's 20 years, as we said, it's worth a lot of money and gets a lot of attention, could do so much more to educate people about sharks and change their opinion and do something that makes it, it can still be interesting and fascinating. Yes. But, and they're just like, you know what, you guys are just screwing everybody by being so simplified and well, there's a you there's know, a history. It's fair criticism. Well, I just think that there is a rich history in this space in the marine uh, communication video space, but from Jacques Cousteau on down the line yeah. of really inspiring generations to come with yeah. this content. 100%. And I will say, as someone who grew up watching the original Shark Weeks, I was I was captivated. And I might be. Uh, it might have contributed to me huh. being on this show right now in wow. some little. Well, I'll say that about way. Jacques Cousteau. I mean, it, I, I mean, I've, I think I've said this on a couple of Absolutely. shows. Absolutely. But, but you know, my dad was an Air Force pilot, and I never in my entire life growing up lived anywhere near the ocean, nor until I went to college when I lived in Galveston. Uh, and uh, so I'd never lived near the sea and I wanted to be a marine biologist from when I was 10 and it was only because I watched Flipper and I watched Jacques Cousteau religiously and read everything the guy did. I mean, those shows were important in who I became and it wasn't because I grew up near the sea. So you would want these things to these shows and these, Bob Ballard does this kind of work. Um, yes. Cousteau, of course, did this kind of work and other uh, Attenborough, of course, the things that he does are the su superior quality to anything. But uh, it's a powerful tool. And I think people are frustrated that they're just kind of not taking advantage of it. It's cheap. It's cheap. And it lacks. It's not it's not doing justice to um, any of the stories that we cover and that we know exist. Right. Be they personal about the individual shark scientists and and those people and who they are and the real people right. not the stage people the real human beings yeah who have really interesting lives all the way to the actual science and uh questions that they are answering yeah uh new techniques of of you know this is not chomping mouths though this is you got to really no. you got to reach into your bag as a crafts as a craftsperson of 
of a documentary and like make a more interesting thing right and they don't have the chops for that so i'm saying mm. just don't tune in that's what we are doing here we're, this is <laughs> this is probably the only time we're going to talk about this we're not what yeah we're going to boycott it we don't really talk about we when we don't really we, do a lot of this media, stuff happens and we tr- uh, we know that like on twitter it'll blow up with seaspiracy for for days yes it was for days and we just decided you know we're not gonna feed that beast right let's just ignore it and focus on the good yeah stuff. no i i think that's worth mentioning and it, it's kind of why we brought this one up is when it became a big story right of way uh, uh we decided we weren't going to do anything with it on coastal news today nor were we going to do a podcast on the subject and there were podcasters doing uh seaspiracy podcasts and really following it and we just felt like it was an unwarranted controversy that the the quality of what was produced was not very good, and we didn't want to expound expound on it. Yeah, and we have so much. I like that. There are so many film. other um, good, good stories, you know, rich stories to tell that we don't need to waste our time, you know, bitching too much about the bad stuff. But it's worth pointing out, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, you know we 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 really could use better stuff out there. Um, we need it, uh, particularly on television, particularly on a mass, uh, you know, a, a big pop culture phenomenon like Shark Week. That should be done more responsibly. Hmm. And if it if it's not, we should just stop watching it. And I would encourage everyone to tune out uh, until right. advised otherwise. Now, speaking of tuning out, the other part of that is tuning in. And there's That's a right. lot of good stuff on ASPN coming up that people ought to be tuning into. And uh, Tyler, I just got to say, it's been a great year on ASPN with some of the new shows we've got coming uh, that have come out and others under development. But uh, there's just I, I just I love listening to the network. Um, you know, you and I do one show on this network and uh, there are there are 14 others or so. And uh, I just you know, I learn something every day when I listen to the hosts on this network. I just love it. Well, Peter, you're right. Um, this month in August. There will be 18 uh, episodes released on ASPN. Wow. 18 episodes. We will account for only five of those. Wow. Five ASPs, including the one you're listening to right now. Yeah. Okay. So only four more to go for us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but a total of 17 more shows wow. across the network. And um, it's the core. it's always been about bringing in the other voices or when i say the other voices it can't just be you and i on this thing no we don't you know come on if you're still listening to this then (laughs) you're (laughs) well it's true that because that you know perspective matters and the truth is uh is is more completely understood if you listen to a variety of takes and uh that's what i love about the network is we have a variety of people you know talking about subjects that matter to coastal americans that's right and uh, let's see. I do have our shows for uh, this coming week. I'll okay. run through them. Yeah, let's before do a highlight. I, before I do that, let's let me let's go through some of the big ones for the year because okay. we don't get to do these shows. But Peter, we added uh, Admiral Tim Gallaudet's show, the American yeah. Blue Economy podcast. Yeah, what a cool show! Uh, he's done three, I believe. Are we on uh, episode five? Is actually going to be coming out this month. Episode five. Um, you know, Tim Gallaudet, oceanographer of the Navy, assistant administrator of NOAA, um, an incredible career in a prof- as a professional. Um, and what a great show. I just love it. And he has on this extraordinary panel of guests every time, like four or five or six people 
that are of the highest caliber and gets them all talking about the subject and interacting with each other. It's and it's it's a very insightful show. It's, it's as I'd say, in, insight and intelligence is what you get on ASPN, and that is a good example of it. And that comes out monthly. Uh, so episode five comes out this month, uh, a little later in the month. And another new one of note is North Coast Chronicles. Yeah, you put this one together with Helen Brawls. What do you think of it? Well, uh, I, I adore this show. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, this is a, a show about tales from the Great Lakes. This is about... Uh, our Great Lakes shoreline, which uh, yeah. I can't say that we neglected. We we had always planned on including the Great Lakes, but inevitably, uh, we our coverage skewed toward the oceanic, yeah. uh, the salty parts yeah. of the shoreline. We just got to it, and I'm glad we did. Well, we found just the perfect toast. Yeah. Uh, Helen is uh, right off the shoreline there on Lake Erie. <laughs> yeah. And um, she just grew up, there. just grew up, just oozes the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Um, we two episodes are out, uh, and episode three uh, comes out this month, and I'm really looking forward to it because it has to do with the really? viniculture and oh, this is the wine and food this is the, of wine, the Great Lakes, the wine episode. I know who knew, and you know, I didn't know there was a wine industry in the Great Lakes region, but we're going to find that out. Um, the wine culture and the food culture, because it was a very, very wealthy part of the of you know it was the it was the Silicon Valley of its day, and as she says, kind of, she thinks still is actually, and I think might be coming back. I yeah, mean, there's there's back. a lot going on with uh, climagration out in that region yeah. that I think uh, is intriguing. Um, but just a just a really fun show. It's it's unlike any other ASPN unlike show. It's not else. it's not a technical policy or science uh, oriented show. This is really about uh, understanding a region's culture and history and heritage. Yeah. And I it, last minute, I never really thought about Great Lakes history, culture, and heritage until putting this show together with Helen. And I just yeah. think she's doing yeah, a, a she's masterful fabulous. job with it. And she herself is great. She great is. host. My my wife. We were listening to it driving up to Maine. We listened to Helen's uh, both of her shows, and uh, after it signed off, Genevieve uh, looked over at me and said. I love her. And I said, yeah, I know. She's fantastic. She's like, she's such a great conversationalist. She's so warm. And here's the other thing. Like all of the hosts on ASPN, they're deeply technically grounded in the subject matter. Uh, Not only did Helen grow up there and her brother is a captain of a Great Lakes Laker, the biggest ships that transit, and her father worked on ports. And so she comes, first of all, grounded in who she is and where she grew up. Uh, but she's also the head of the uh, the U.S. government's task force on commercial navigation, and I will not try to remember the name of it, but she is a very high-level U.S. government official on shipping and maritime policy for the United States government. So, And then she talks about pie crust and about what's cool about the Great Lakes, and I'm just, you know, you just know there's so much richness in what the stories that she tells and what she can bring to this show so i'm just you know she's i'm she's, looking i'm so jazzed about her show we're lucky to have helen yeah. brawl hosting that show uh we're also lucky to have uh the going coastal podcast on the network these days this yeah. is the american shore and beach preservation association's uh, student and new professional chapters yeah. show yeah what a cool thing this took some months to we've been i think talking to them for quite a while about putting this show together and uh 
I'm really good. At, I'm, what do you think of it so far? They've done well, a couple episodes. What do you think? Well, we, we, we you know, I'm, I feel like uh, if I was the GM of the Lakers, we got to get younger. <laughs> we had to get some young legs. And uh, so uh, going, co- or, uh, going Coastal is a uh, great show about, obviously, the students and new professionals who are entering into the space and who are in the space. And they're talking about what they're working on, what they're researching, right? Um, and what they find exciting and interesting. And that's really the most important thing. Is like, mm-hmm. what direction is the next generation right. interested in? In si- marine science, trans, you know, engineering, all Correct. the all the disciplines, policy planning. Yeah, the next generation of coastal professionals. And we always knew this yeah, would be important. on it. We always knew this was going to be an important part of the ASPN. Uh, chorus. We needed to have yeah. our uh, the the next generation of voices heard, and that's one of the things we really made a concerted effort of yeah. adding yeah. Uh, this year, along with the Rising Sea Voices podcast mm-hmm. uh, hosted by Felicia Almeida Schultz, yeah. our wonderful lead on yeah. ASPNU, and which I think we're kind of molding into actually this kind of section of our coverage, yeah. which is our kind of students and ac- young professionals in academia yep. and really profiling these stories. Yeah. You know, Felicia joined us last year, I think it was September or October, uh, to help out developing ASPN University based on the, the series we did with Oregon State University, which was really fantastic. Uh, and so I, I always knew that, they, you know, when I met her and got to know her working on that project, I thought, man, she needs to be on our network. She has a really interesting voice and perspective and, and an incredible ethical point of view. And uh, this Rising Sea Voices podcast is a, is an, is a, is a podcast devoted to coastal science and engineering and technical academic investigation and to inclusion, diversity and inclusion, 100%. And uh, I'm really proud of her and for bringing that to us and, and to working with us on our value statement and other things that we're trying to do to be, to be deliberately inclusive as we can be and who our hosts are and what kind of things we talk about. So you know, my hat's off to her. I think she really helped uh, help us uh, move in a good direction here. You got to listen to this show. I mean, it's yeah. she does a great job of talking about the research and and also getting to know the individual behind it. And we are complicated people, and the people that make up uh, our community have a broad spectrum of stories and we tend to only kind of look at the ones that are most similar to ourselves. And Felicia really has a knack for um, finding new and interesting stories that we can all learn a lot from. And so uh, that show is just, I really, it's really a gem uh, on the ASPN calendar. And that's, that's a monthly offering. Uh, Of course we have Leslie Ewing, our, our, an OG host on the network with her monthly <laughs> shoreward show. Yeah. Uh, and we are excited to uh, be bringing on hopefully this month, a new uh, offering from the coastal society. This is another uh, young person show student show Yeah, um, from the Carolinas. And so, although I think it will cover the, um, the whole American shoreline, but uh, really excited for that. Peter, I know we're getting late, so I want to yeah. quickly go over what we're doing this week on Okay, ASPN. what are we doing? What do we get going? Okay, so it's a it's a big one. We right. have uh, four shows coming out this week. Wow. Uh, starting off on Tuesday with uh, 
Delta Dispatches, and this is one that you're going to like. It's the economic case for coastal restoration. Huh. Delta Dispatches dial that one in. from uh, New Orleans, all about the, yeah, the coastal the, the coast of Louisiana Restoration Project. That's going to be cool. Okay. That's right. And uh, Wednesday, we've got the monthly water log from oh, yeah. Howard Marlowe and Dan Janolfi. Up in our, D.C. Up in D.C., you know. Our Capitol Hill boys. Pounding, pounding <laughs> boot leather to the marble at that's, the Capitol. That's right. <laughs> uh, just hustling to get the stories for you. And they're going to be going over this new uh, COBRA Act that we discussed earlier on the Are show. They? They're going to be discussing that as well. They're going to be looking at the coastal uh, highlights from the House appropriation bills. And they're going to dive into the infrastructure bill a little bit. So that's oh, wow. exciting. That should be an interesting show. Well, they're experts. You know, Dan and Howard up on the Hill do a lot. They work for a lot of coastal communities around the country. They do a little, they consult a little bit. And uh, let's just say they know their way around the coast and they know their way around uh, the Russell Senate office building too. Uh, and everywhere on Capitol Hill. They're, they're, so when they talk about what's going on in the Hill, I always listen to it because I want to find out what's really going on. And they'll let you know. So I love that one. Absolutely. And yeah. finally, our final show, Friday, the Ocean Decade Show, exclamation oh, really? point. It's Taylor. With Taylor Geltz. Oh, good. I can't wait to hear and Taylor. And gonna, you're really going to like this one. This, uh, this show is about the BBNJ, the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction uh, conference. Ooh. And so this has to do with, you know, the blue how, ocean. Correct. And how we're going to govern this and yeah. how the ocean decade is going to approach wow. the multinational elements here. So this is a total UN yeah. global ocean management show. Yeah. Don't uh, you love Taylor's show? I mean, oh, Taylor, it's superb. I mean she's, what number is this for her? Can you tell? It's like five or six. Well, it started on New Year's Day. So this would be her fifth show. I okay. Taylor, you know, former Canals fellow now with the Alpine Institute working on decarbonization of open shipping. She's absolutely brilliant. She's a great interviewer and she worked really hard on the Ocean Decade in her Canals fellowship. Uh, and I just think if you're looking for the biggest picture possible about broad scale, uh, sort of global level thinking on ocean and climate and, and uh, coastal issues, Taylor's just a just a blast absolutely and Come, i do it's another one i learned too much when i listen to it. every time i learn too much that's right coming up on friday uh ocean decade show new episode check it out uh and of course we're gonna have another saturday special we're just keeping the content running yeah basically ladies and gentlemen uh tune into aspn all august long we have a packed month of content uh spanning the coastal space right yeah. here yeah amazing collection tyler well thanks everybody it was great to catch up in uh middle of the year we'll probably do another one of these at the end of the year and just touch base with y'all but i'm really proud of the, the work that coastal news today is doing and aspn and all of the great hosts that join with us to uh, talk about the issues around the world on and around around the american shoreline because there's a lot to talk about Sunlight.